Welcome to Humans of SaaS. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and on this show, I talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders from the tech industry who each have a unique and compelling story to share. On this week's episode, we talk about sabbaticals, the newest perk being offered, remote work sustainability. Can we sustain it? Hint, no. Um, at least I can't. Wordle, taking over the world, and the rise of the anti-work movement. So starting with sabbaticals, this is something that was new to me in terms of it really being offered at scale as a perk. There's a lot of companies offering it that I didn't know previously did. So companies like PayPal, Adobe, Audible, Dropbox, Yotpo, Toast, G2, they're letting people take these long breaks. It varies obviously between you know, a month, a quarter, six months, um, but they're letting people take these long breaks so that they can sort of go do whatever they want. They're getting paid, they can travel, spend time with their family. And there's you know a lot of great things that come along with that, and then also not so much. So I wanted to dive into you know some of these pros and cons because all companies are sort of looking at these new things that they can offer in order to retain employees and optimize their employee experience. And you know on its face, this kind of sounds great. I would love a six month paid vacation where I could you know just go to Italy or something like that and lie on a beach and still collect my paycheck. Um, but long term, is that a good strategy for companies? Starting with the obviously good stuff, when people step away, it allows them to be more creative, it allows them to work on their health, apparently it, it helps with job satisfaction as well, and I imagine that's, I mean, it's not too far off because, hey, if your job is paying you to relax and be creative and take care of your health, that sounds pretty awesome. Uh, it also lets you be more creative because now your brain can, you know, make new connections, learn new things, you have time to go to the beach, go to museums, you know, read books, all the things that, you know, if you're really drowning in work, it's really hard to do on a regular basis. And obviously take care of your health when you're working and you're stressed and you're tired and you don't have enough time maybe to spend with your family or to take vacations. That impacts your health, both your mental and your physical health. So there are a lot of great benefits that come out of taking a sabbatical. But some of the cons, or basically there's one main con that I think is, is really important to, to call out, and that it doesn't, and that is that sabbaticals don't address the root cause of why you need a sabbatical in the first place. Do you want to be working at a job where you feel like you need to take six months off to take care of your health and to be creative? Like, I think, you know, this isn't painting every company with, with one brush because I'm certain there are many companies that have great cultures and also offer sabbaticals, but a lot of them are companies where they don't have great cultures. And so, you know, they're offering sabbaticals as a solution to that. But then when people come back, they're right back into the problem. And as I was researching this, I read many stories of people who went on sabbatical and surprisingly, I'd say that with air quotes, never came back because I guess the time off, they realized that, oh, this isn't actually what I want to be doing. And this isn't the culture I want to be working in. I want to be more in like this environment. So, you know, from digging through sort of all the articles and analyses and research that's been done on this, what came through is that sabbaticals are nice, but in reality, what people really need is better communication with management, with their manager, reduced hours and workload, and firmer boundaries. So I want to dive a little bit into each of those, because those are the critical things. And I think if you were to offer someone today, I mean, me, like a Catalyst, for example, if you were to offer me, you know, a six-month break versus, hey, you know, we can reduce your hours and workload in perpetuity, give you firmer boundaries between work and non-work, and improve your communication with your manager, 
I would absolutely choose that option. No, I think I have great communication with my manager and I'm not saying that I, I'm in a troubled situation or anything like that, but I think those things are things that can always be better at every company, whether they're bad to good or good to great um, or great to incredible, there's always room for improvement with those versus taking six months off, amazing, but then you know I'm just gonna come back and it's gonna be the exact same, which you know for some people is cool, other people not so much. And I think that where this needs to start is more of like an open dialogue, right? If you know that across the board, these are the big things to improve on and you are a manager, start thinking about instead of saying, okay, we need to give everyone on our team sabbaticals, try thinking first about, okay, is there anything I can do to improve the communication with my team? Is there anything I can do to reduce their hours and workload on a regular basis? Is there anything I can do to establish firmer boundaries between you know, when we're working and when we're not working. Can I give my team strategies? Can I lead by example? Can I do anything to move those before resorting to, okay, everyone, you're getting six months paid off, you know, or four months paid off, go have fun, you know, or hey, do both. That sounds great as well. Um, you know, this is not a, a one or the other, but I think it's really interesting that people are, are exploring. And last week we talked about four-day work weeks. And, and what I highlighted with four-day work weeks is that the studies show that it, was influential on both ends of the spectrum. For people who didn't like their job, it made them basically less engaged. And for people who loved their job, it made them like more engaged pretty much. And so I think this is one of those, those a, a sort of similar thing where, again, unless you're addressing the root cause, like for four-day work weeks, you have to address that root cause. Do people like their jobs first? Because a four-day work week isn't going to solve that. Do they like what they're doing every day? Do they like their team? Are they working sustainably? Are they happy? Like Those things matter more than, okay, great, working four days instead of five. And the same rules apply to the sabbatical approach. So again, like I love all these things that companies are offering, but I think all managers and, and team leaders need to think about is before we start pushing for all of these perks, and, and sort of flashy things we can do, the company week off in the summer and you know, Mental Health Fridays and all that great stuff, um, which I do love and think are important, first and foremost needs to come the core things that impact everyday work, communication, hours and workload, and firmer boundaries. Even some governments are taking this into, into their own hands, right? Like there's rules in, in Europe now and in several countries where, you know, it, a manager emailing someone on their team post 5 p.m. is a finable offense. There's rules, I believe, in Denmark where companies have to shut down their servers at, I think it's 6 p.m. and on weekends or something like that, um, so that literally emails cannot come through. Um, I don't think that's a great solution because it feels very like paternalistic. And if you're at a high growth startup and you need to get like a contract over the line, you do not want your server shutting down. Sometimes you just need that. And I'm not saying that just because it's Q4 right now for, for several companies, including our own. But I do think that we all need to have that conversation about how we can systematically create firmer boundaries, reduce hours and workload and streamline communication. One of the other topics I wanted to chat about today is remote work sustainability. Now, we've been doing remote work for quite a while. It feels like 10 years. It's, I think, more like two. Um, but recently, this, this topic was trending and people have been really questioning, you know, is remote work sustainable? Uh, we've talked a lot about benefits, there are, there, which there are, and we'll dive into those. But first, I want to talk about some of the, the biggest challenges that we've seen emerge with remote work. First and foremost, I think it's about the loss of, of human connection. 
you know, we can see each other on Zoom and that's cool, but looking at each other's pets through a screen, waving to each other through a screen, seeing a virtual background, like these do not create human connection. It's the same way, reason why I don't like virtual events. I like in-person events. You know, virtual events can be great for, you know, your top of funnel marketing if you're looking to collect a lot of emails, but you're not going to form real human connections at a virtual event, no matter what platform you're using, at least right now. And it's the same with working with your colleagues. You know, it's great that we can work over Slack. It's great that we can see each other when we need to. But at the same time, like I don't have that same connection that I did when I was in the office with, you know, colleagues and friends every single day of the week. Not that I'm saying that's the solution either. We'll get into some of those. But, you know, loss of human connection, I think, is undeniable in terms of, you know, long-term remote work sustainability. Collaboration and coordination failure. I think, you know, if anyone says that they haven't, seen this, felt this in the last two years, then I I have to call you out for lying because it is simply impossible to collaborate and coordinate virtually in the same way that you would sitting next to someone that you're working on a project with in the office. I think there are some great tools that make this a lot easier. I think tools like Slack, Zoom, Hopin, Miro, Mural, like there are so many great collaboration tools out there. But you know, it, it will never replace, you know, looking to your side and going, hey, Mike, how's this project coming? Do you need any help with that? Or what's the latest on this? And even just your, your natural running into each other in the office and having those sporadic conversations, being able to pull people into a physical meeting where everyone's present and they don't have eight windows open. Like we've all experienced collaboration and coordination failure at some point through this pandemic. And that for me is, I think, one of the biggest ones that I've that I've personally felt and, and struggled with. And maybe that's just the way I think. Like, I I have to work at being organized. It doesn't come naturally to me. And so I prefer being in person with other people. But, you know, I've tried to make it work. And I think I've gotten better. But definitely experiencing that that collaboration and coordination failure. And the more people involved, just the more screwed up it gets. Equity issues have emerged. So, you know, if, if everyone's working remotely, but, you know, someone has children or, you know, they're there's there's all sorts of things that come along with that that can pose extra challenges for some people. Someone's in a studio apartment or even a one bedroom with their spouse, like I am, and you need to make sure that, you know, no one's making noise if the other's on calls or they're not in the background in their underwear or something like that. Like that's, these are all things that need to be considered in working remotely. Not everybody has their own home office with a door and a sign on it that you can put on so that no one bothers you for eight hours a day. Like, I'm super jealous of those people, but that's not what I have. And I know that's not what um, the vast majority of people who are working remotely have. Technology and network access is a huge one. I remember when I, when Sydney, our head of customer success started at Catalyst, um, you know, she lives in, in a rural area and her internet was like, I don't know, six megabytes download. It was something pathetic for a long time. And Fortunately, you know, Elon Musk to the rescue, she's now on Starlink and and loving it and it's great and we can see her with such wonderful clarity. But for a long time that was really challenging. And so for people who don't have Starlink but live in a rural area or have other internet issues, again, huge problem there. Generational divides is another one, right? Like certain generations just grew up with technology and it's much easier um, for us to understand it, navigate it, you know, collaborate, even though I was just complaining about my own. Uh, lack of ability there, but generational divides definitely emerge, you know, which, you know, we, especially in tech startups, we struggle with ageism enough already. So adding this additional one where we're just adding a layer for people who maybe aren't as tech savvy, but might be brilliant business people um, is just frankly not, not fair, not right. Career advancement is another one. So visibility and recognition, like 
some of those things, yes, we can do, but we have to be so much more intentional than when it's in person and people will see you and just call you out. And it's, I don't know, I just feel like it's a lot easier in person. And frankly, you know, you get FaceTime with senior management when you're all in the office together and you build that human connection versus over Zoom or just them seeing, okay, you got this shout out in Lattice. Like that's not the same. And so I think there's a lot of things there to, to consider. So those are six of sort of the biggest ones I wanted to highlight. Now, are they solvable? Probably. You know, if you're an entrepreneurial person, you probably thought of, you can probably think right now, take each of one of those issues and you could probably come up with 10 ideas on how we can improve that. And there are already companies working hard on collaboration and coordination software and giving people technology access and network access. But the question is, will we solve them soon enough and well enough before the end of the pandemic to say that, yes, remote work is sustainable? I totally get that like no company wants to be the bad guy or the heavy to say everyone has to come in. And anytime any CEO or any company does say that, they get crapped on by by social media because people are like, oh, it's not safe, it's not fair. And I totally think there's a valid point. I'm not saying that everybody should be going back into the office right now. But I do think as we look ahead to, you know, okay, when are we getting to the end to things being endemic? When is this pandemic over? You know, what's that going to look like? Are we going to really sustain remote work in this hybrid model for every tech company across the board? I frankly, I just don't think that that's doable. I don't think it's sustainable. Personally, it's not what I want. And, you know, obviously there are some people who do want hybrid. There's some people that want to be 100% remote. You know, across the board, when people interview workers, the number one thing they want is flexibility. So I completely get that. But ultimately, our choices are, okay, either innovate innovate rapidly so that the people who do want to be in the office, frankly, like me, um, you know, are able to solve for the issues I just listed and we don't feel that need to be in the office because we have all these new innovative solutions um, that work just as well, if not better. Um, or we can commit to 100% in or 100% remote long-term. And, and you know, you can accept that you're going to lose employees, whichever one you pick, though you might gain new ones that fit your culture. So just to clarify what I'm saying there is, for example, Catalyst could say everyone has to be 100% in the office, maybe except for a couple a couple roles or maybe one team or something like that. And, you know, we'd probably lose employees because there are people who want to be 100% remote or they want the hybrid model. And, you know, that would suck. But we then potentially acquire new people that love being in the office as well and want to be part of that culture and value that. And so then that's the culture we build going forward. And the same, you know, could be said for picking 100% remote um, or 100% hybrid. I think the important thing is just picking something and sticking to it and then hiring people that fit that or that's what they are looking for in the kind of company they want. So I think as long as a company is consistent, that's going to be one of the biggest keys going forward. Um, the other option, in my opinion, is to accept managed decline, where things are just a hybrid mess. Everything's changing all the time. There's no consistency. Um, you know, we have all these issues like I listed before, generational divides, career advancement issues, equity issues, collaboration issues, human connection issues. Like, we can sustain that. We've done it for two years. Obviously, it, it, it is possible without shutting down the economy. But in the long term, you know, unless a suite of new tools comes out to support it, I think we're sort of doing managed decline there. We're going to become either less productive or have more mental health issues or all these things are going to become more and more problematic as we move into the future of work. And I just don't see that going well. I think we need to innovate or we need to pick something and commit to it 100% and then let the cards fall as they will. 
This podcast is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. And I'm not just saying that because I work there uh, and because I work on the marketing team. I actually used to be a CSM and a CS leader. I used Google Sheets, I used other CS platforms, legacy ones, and I had all the pain points that you know everyone knows. Like they're great for so many things and you're able to do so much with them, but there are just some key things that you know I would never be able to do because I needed an admin to come in or I needed an analyst or it would take just weeks to iterate on health scores or things like that. When I saw Catalysts and I heard the philosophy and I saw the product roadmap and I heard the vision, I knew it was something that I wanted to be a part of because having been in the CS space now for six, seven years almost, I know that this is something that, I mean, it already has provided insane value to to our customers, but it will provide so much value to so many more folks. And I'm excited to be part of the company's growth. So if you're curious about learning more about Catalyst, go to catalyst.io and request a demo. Would love to get your feedback and show it to you. Up next is the takeover of Wordle. It has taken literally over the world. It has gone in the last month from, you know, like 50 people using it to millions of daily players around the world. I think it's up to like five or six million people, last I checked, that are doing it every day. It has spawned spinoffs like Loodle, which is the inappropriate version. That's L-E-W-D-L-E. Not that I use it. Um, you know, it's too inappropriate for me, but... Um, you know, spawn spinoffs. Um, someone made a for-profit version on the App Store. Of course, the second it became popular, they were like, how can I steal this and make money? Because people are great like that. Um, fortunately, unfortunately for them, but fortunately for the rest of us, the internet did come for them and that app did get removed uh, after the founder or the creator um, who ripped it off, you know, tried to excuse it by saying that, you know, Wordle was already a play on something else and he just saw the business opportunity and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Wordle won that, so now that that for-profit version has been removed from the App Store. Someone else has made a bot that auto-responds to Wordle tweets with tomorrow's answer, um, which has now been banned from Twitter, but I feel so bad for the people who were victims of that because I can only imagine how stressful that would have been. You know, you have this one shining light where you get to guess a word every morning and now someone's ruined it for you. Although I don't understand the tweeting thing. I fully get, you know, like we'll share it in our channels at work because we're all doing it together and we know each other. I've never tweeted my Wordle score to the world. I'd probably do that if I got it on the first one though. So I think you get, uh, you get a pass if you guess the word the first or second, first or second time. Um, Dharmesh Shah from HubSpot made a first word evaluator last weekend. Um, so you, know, you can search that up if you wanna know how strong your first word is. But anyway, the reason I wanna talk about, about all this is you know, it's such a simple word game. So how and why did it become so massive? And I think it's just another example of how COVID has made us crave connection with each other to the point where we've formed a community around this like dumb little game. And, you know, not calling it dumb. I do love it. But, you know, it is a simple little game. Uh, and this goes even back to my previous point about challenges with with being remote. You know, this game, you do it with your colleagues, you share it with friends and family, you some people post choose to post it on Twitter. You know, if it came out in 2019, would it have exploded the same way? Probably not. I, I don't think it would have. I think people are just craving these little opportunities to create communities and have some sort of connection with other people around the world and, and you know, in their life. So why is all this relevant? Well, if you're in a customer-facing role or you manage a team of people, basically if you do anything interpersonally right now in a remote or a hybrid environment, this is a reminder that things are not normal. We are not working in a new normal. I hate the term new normal. This is a temporary blip that sucks. And we all need to accept that and figure out how to deal with it, sure, but it is not the new normal. We cannot normalize 
the way that things have been going, the way that we're working and communicating and this loss of human connection, we've been going in the wrong way. And, you know, we've been forced to. It's no, no fault of us. But, you know, this is a temporary blip. And while we navigate it, hopefully getting back to old normal, good normal, I don't know, whatever the next normal is, you know, I think there's some, some th- key things to, to keep in mind which is from, and and one of the lessons that I take from this game is that simplicity wins. So, you know, my number one rule for, I've always thought, said it for copywriting and for marketing, but it holds true for literally everything, communication, projects, requests, feedback, the simpler, the better, the fewer words, the better. Like how, I think in Wordle is like the ultimate example of that because it's such a simple game. And yet that's also why it's done so well. Like simplicity always wins. Never try, never try to make something sound more complicated your focus should always be, how can I take this concept and simplify it? How can I take this sentence and shorten it? So that's rule one. Rule two, keep things entertaining. People are incredibly deprived of entertainment. Netflix is not cutting it. Their content, I mean, I have my own. That's a whole separate podcast. But if you can, the point is, if you can entertain people, whether it's your customers, your team members, you'll keep their attention. You'll keep them engaged, especially remotely. We have to work doubly hard to do this. But again, Wordle is a perfect example. It's nothing revolutionary, but it's simple and it's entertaining. And that's what people need so badly right now is any opportunity to be entertained. So it's something to think about for the next time you're on a call, whether it's a team meeting, a sales call, a QBR. What is something that you can do to entertain the people on the call? And I don't mean necessarily show up in a funny hat, but that's, you know, what, what is something you can put in your deck? What is something that you can talk about? What's a story that you can share that's funny or compelling, but that's relevant? Um, keep them entertained and you'll keep their engagement. You'll keep them focused on you and you'll get the results that you want. Also, I mean, think about ways to leverage rituals or communities. Wordle is a daily ritual that people have formed a community around. You don't need to organize an entire cooking class or remote karaoke party to keep your team engaged. In fact, again, going back to rule one, simplicity. Simple things more regularly are far better. For example, on my team at Catalyst, we play um, Scategories, Quiplash, or Scribble.io for 30 minutes every Friday. We do other things too, but that's our ritual. Every Friday, we're playing one of these games, and then the winner gets like a $25 DoorDash gift card. And I, I enjoy it every week. I love it. I think it's great. And I would happily do that more often. I love these simple little rituals. So think of some little micro rituals that you can introduce to your team or your customers. And you'll find your sense of connection meaningfully increases, actually more so than doing, doing big things. It's better to do more regular small things that are not work-related. Uh, that's the best way to introduce, or sorry, to improve connection with those you, you work with over time. Also... I'm a purist, so I don't use the first word evaluator for Wordle. And the one time I copied someone else's first word, I got zero matches for it. So, you know, my best advice for getting the right word is stay true to your instincts. I did it right before I recorded this podcast and I got it on the third try. So, you know, little brag there. One of the other things that I think is really important to talk about is the rise of the anti-work movement. I know, anti-work sounds quite anarchist, and it was for a while. Um, it was around for a while before the pandemic. From you know, It was people who were genuinely like anti-anti-work. Um, but it got accelerated by the pandemic, and you know, primarily on Reddit, actually. The subreddit now has nearly 2 million members. It's growing by 60,000 people a week. You know, now, the thrust is not necessarily, you know, we don't want to work at all, but the philosophy is that people should self-organize and labor only as much as needed rather than working longer hours to create excess capital or goods. So you know, they're not trying to eliminate work altogether, but they're trying to fuel critical conversations about work in general 
And now they're talking about labor rights, importing strike efforts and labor movements around the world. And I wanted to highlight this because, you know, we talk a lot about the Great Resignation, a, a whole lot, um, but we don't talk nearly enough about what can be done to fix current work issues. Now, some things, you know, when we talk about Great Resignation, I think we're, we're talking pretty insularly because there are a lot of workers who are locked geographically. They can't move to somewhere else um, to, to get a new job or they've got specialized skills. Um, and so, you know, they don't have that flexibility to just say, oh, well, I can get more money over here and, and switch their job if they're not happy where they are. So it's not easy as just saying, you know, well, find another job you do like, which I think I said on the show last week. But I think that applies for many people in tech because we do have that option by and large. But again, we need to recognize that we are in a bubble on that. And there is something to be said for loyalty and for trying to fix where you are before you leave. And that's, I think, the biggest point that I wanted to hone in on today, because I think it applies to every job in every industry. You know, and I'm not necessarily, I don't think, I'm not one of those people that's like loyalty above all, you should be willing to suffer and we're a family and, you know, like, no, you're, there's, there's a balance there. There's a reasonable amount of loyalty that I think you should show to your company. And the form that I think that takes is by being really honest and about trying to fix where you are before you leave. I see so many people quit for better money, benefits, title, culture, but they don't try to fix where they are first. There's a few reasons for that. You know, maybe they're afraid of uh, confrontation. They don't like to make a stir. Um, or I think, and this is the biggest one, is they just don't believe that they can. They don't believe that anything will change where they are. So they're like, why even try? Um, I'm just going to go over here. And that's fine for you, but it's actually inconsiderate for your fellow tech workers because the company is just going to hire someone to replace you and that person will have the same struggles you did. Also, when you leave a company, that's your best opportunity to just go, you know, for lack of a better term, balls to the wall, like tell them everything that you honestly think about the company and the culture in a respectful way. And, you know, you're probably going to still have some friends in that company and you might be doing them a favor by being brutally honest about what these issues are. Uh, you know, and giving them that opportunity to improve it. We should all want workplaces to be better for everyone, not just ourselves. So I think we do owe it to each other. And whether it's to our existing colleagues or future hires to improve work environments as much as we can. And if you try and you fail, like you, you make it clear, you know, I, I'd love to stay here, but this is what I would need in order to stay. At least you did what you needed to do. You made it clear to the company why you're leaving, what they need to do better. They rejected it. So now it's their fault that you're leaving. That's how I look at it. But if you don't try at all, the company will dismiss it as a you problem. They'll just be like, oh, they weren't a fit. You know, they weren't good for our culture, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and they won't change anything. They're just going to keep going the way they have been. And things could even get worse. So at every organization I've been in, I've tried to affect cultural change. Sometimes I failed. Sometimes I've succeeded. At my last company, in my weekly one-on-ones, every week with the CEO, I would tell him how happy I was in my role out of 10. And if I was less than an eight, we spent time digging in on why that was and what could be done about it. And because this was a weekly practice, I was so honest with him and it was fantastic. You know, sometimes change came out of it and sometimes it didn't. But I stayed at that company for four years almost. And it was and a big part of it was because I felt value and, and heard. And I felt like if I was with brutally honest, if I was always brutally honest with my CEO, my feedback might help to make the workplace better for others and myself. And sometimes it did. And sometimes what I asked for wasn't possible. But I found that to be such a great system. And it let me feel like I was improving where I was working, both for myself and for others. So listen, I, I don't think we're going to see a radical shift in the way that companies and people work. Those 
frankly, of power have too much power and they have a too much vested interest in keeping the status quo. And I'm, I'm not talking about like small startups. I'm talking about the large companies that influence the way that the entire country operates. But what I do think is possible and likely is incremental change over the next few years that is brought on by upwards pressure from people like you, people like me, and the millions of workers who are part of this new labor movement that will make workplaces better. You know, it's not going to be one quick fix. It will be bit by bit over time. It'll require experimentation, right, with like different schedules, different formats of working. You know, it's going to require a lot of work, but I'm optimistic that in five to 10 years from now, workplaces will look and feel very different. And I think it will all be for the better. So the final thought that I want to leave you with today is that is something based on a recent LinkedIn post I wrote, which was that it's not a coincidence that the happiest people you know are also the most generous people you know. So if you're having a rough day or a rough week, think of something kind you can do for someone else, a neighbor, a colleague, big or small. The easiest way to make yourself happier is by doing something kind for someone else. It's the, I promise, it's the ultimate life hack. And it's counterintuitive, I know. Like, you're already having a bad day, shouldn't people be doing nice things for you? But I guarantee you, the quickest way to feeling better is by doing something good for someone else. So look for something big or small you can do for someone else today, and I guarantee your week will improve. Thanks everyone for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Make sure to subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, our email is community at getcatalyst.io.